Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. You're gonna make fun of me because I, now it sounds like I'm just making shit up, but I think it was called the swinger. Is it going to be all right? Hello, and welcome to All Through a Land. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. <laughs> oh my god, and I am Eric. Well, on this episode, we'll be talking to Alan Marks. That's Alan being Alan on Instagram. He's got a new book out, and we're going to find out just what the hell that's about. It's also movie night, sort of. We've done this before, but we'll be watching a couple of episodes of MASH, and we'll promise it, it will all make sense. Don't worry about that. The film detectives will also be dropping by to share some of Yay. their sleuthy antics. And there's the answering machine, some zine reviews, and, and probably a teeny tiny bit more. You'll see, I hope. But first, Vanya, how are you? Ooh, I'm well. Thank you very much. Uh, You're well. You're welcome. I am well. Things are going as planned for the most part. School <laughs> is good. Okay. Life is good-ish. I still haven't broken my surf streak, though, so that kind of sucks. But I did shoot in the water, so that was fun. I think I'm just having a hard time with balancing stuff, which I think I will always it's either I'm having way too much fun time or way too much work time. So right now I'm doing the work time part. <laughs> you definitely need a good balance there. Preferably balance tilted a little more towards the fun, but you know, you, you take what you can get. Exactly. And speaking of taking what I get <laughs> or something, <laughs> I, <laughs> I've God. been having fun at school. <laughs> okay. I, I yeah. guess that's taking what you can get. Yeah. So, okay. It's online, but on Sundays, it's a full like eight hour day of skills. So right. you have to like learn all sorts of things. For for background, you are taking courses in what? Emergency medical services. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Go on. We have to pretend like we're sick or something's wrong with them. And I was shot in the face last week. And then also uh, my instructor like put like a fake bullet on my on the back of me hiding which was really cool. And he was like, don't tell them it's there. Like, see if they Ooh, find it. <laughs> a sneaky bullet. It was a sneaky bullet. So yeah, I've been just having like a blast dying every day, like at, in school. <laughs> also, speaking of school, I got a message from someone who's a principal and don't worry, I wasn't sent to the office. <laughs> they actually said some like super nice things about me sharing things about school and how I just opened myself up with like some of my like learning disabilities and struggles through school with like dyslexia my whole life and things mm -hmm. like that. And they gave me some really good ideas as far as like helping uh, take my tests. But also, I guess I wanted to mention that I'm like going to be 40 next January and school is like terrifying to me. Like I hate school. I hate school so much, but I am trucking along. So if anybody out there is like thinking like they want to even just like learn a new trade, kind of like what I'm doing uh, and they think they can't, you totally fucking can because I'm doing it. So you should do it too. So I'm trying to be positive. No, I, I agree. I agree totally. I think we devalue learning trades, especially later on in adult life. It's, 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 a, yeah. it's a bummer. It's really weird, but I... 
So I have a really good friend, Sophie, and she is constantly going to school for the most random things, but she knows how to weld. (laughs) She knows plumbing. She knows like, uh, you know, electrical. She does all like basic, all the trades, all the basic trades, which is amazing because I'm like, dude, why don't we know these things? Like, why is it that metal shop or wood shop is such a guy thing and girls aren't really like pressed to take it? I think maybe I should have taken those types of classes, but I think it was like either art class or metal shop. So I was like, well, you know, I'll say something. I grew up in, in very rural Pennsylvania and there were definite, uh, gender lines, gender roles that we all had to play. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, my class was very into irony. And so the home ec classes, which is where you learned how to sew and how to bake, they were like over half guys. And the shop classes were, I wouldn't say over half women or girls, but a good percentage. And so it was interesting how irony was actually useful a little bit for us. And that was kind of kind of nice. I took a lot of home ec classes. I think home ec classes, I think every year of high school. Yeah, it's so much fun. Home ec is amazing. Oh, and you get to cook or like, uh, I had home ec one year and it was like the first period. So we got to do like breakfast. We'd make Perfect. like French toast and shit. Like it's amazing. And I don't know if they have home ec in Marley's school anymore. I think so they just like expect me to do it. I know it is really sad. I am okay at French toast, but there's something about making food at school that's not like school food. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's my week. Things have been good. I hope you guys are all doing good. How about you, Eric? What have, what have you been up to? Well, it is, I was going to say it's finally spring, but it's raining here again. So it's finally like March still. It's been It's been a very, very difficult, winter slash spring as far as, as if you've got like a case of the sads, you, uh, you, you really just long for April and May because that's when the sun starts coming out. And it hasn't really. So I've been, usually what I would do is I would go out to Eastern Washington and it's very sunny out there, but it hasn't been. The time I was out, the last time I was out, it was very, it was raining. I was very happy about the rain because it was neat to see the the desertish areas in the rain. Are you only happy when it rains? Is that like a, is that like a Morrissey thing maybe? Ugh, garbage. Okay. All right. And so this last weekend I went camping and I was excited about camping because it was supposed to be finally a uh, temperature more conducive to pleasurable camping, which was about... 48, 48-ish in the, in the evenings through the night. And it was a lot lower than that. It got down to about 40 and it rained. So that was fun. Hmm. But it actually was fun in a way. I'm very tired of the rain, but the rain doesn't deter me from shooting. Let's put it that way. Uh, maybe some heavy, heavy rain would, but like regular rain? No, not, not at all, really. What does deter me is I was going to do a project on what's called summer roads out there. In certain counties, there are roads that are that are packed dirt and very loosely packed dirt. So in the summer, they're super dusty, but in the winter, they're impassable. And when you drive on them right after it rains or when it's raining, it's it's just super slick mud. So there was a time this past weekend where I found myself sliding sideways down a hill. This was, I looked out my my driver's side window and I was like, oh, there's the road. <laughs> and I'm pointed down. This is like the time 
where I would say like any road's a summer road if you are brave enough, right? That is true. Um, there was one road in particular that I tried to go up and, and it was a road that was told to me by someone on Instagram who I think goes by the name Palouse Trash. So she just told me this one route to go and I and I tried to go up it and it was just too muddy and I couldn't get up it. But where I stopped was a farmhouse, like a collection of farmhouses and outbuildings and barns and about a dozen cows who oh. were not even a tiny bit afraid of me. Actually, they didn't give a shit about me at all. Yeah, they were, they were like friendly, right? They, I mean, cows are never, unless you know them, they're not friendly. Yeah. They usually are skittish and they run off. These were just kind mm -hmm. of like, sup. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. They hung out with me for about an hour and I shot around them in the rain and, and it was actually sunny after a little bit and I got some blue skies and we just had a really good time. You and, you and the cows. Me and the cows, yeah. Nice. Now, I did come home and uh, I, I didn't shower that, that night that I got home and I, and I should have. It's always a good... It's always good practice to shower after a trip of, of walking through fields and hiking. I found a tick. <gasps> yes. How come I didn't get any pictures? This sucks. I was, it was in the shower when I found the tick and it oh, was, okay. it was not my first tick. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be weird. Yes. It was not my first tick. Uh, but what do you mean your first my tick? Last. But, oh my God, they're just gross and annoying and... Um, it wasn't a deer tick, so I don't have any threat of Lyme disease, which is nice. But still, I don't, my, my blood is mine, thank you. If I want to give it in, in a donation, I will certainly donate, but not to ticks. So that was my weekend. I was doing some film testing. Wait, what film? Uh, I'm not at liberty to say, actually. Oh, is this the top secret thing that you keep talking about? I'm No. I don't have any top secret thing that I keep talking about. If it's top secret, I'm not talking about it. And if I keep talking about it, it's not top secret. Gotcha. Okay, so you're testing film and we can't know about it. I have shared a few of the images and uh, I'm sure we all, we all, I mean, it's not my film. I have nothing to do with it other than I'm testing it. So that's all. Neat. Yes. Fun. <sighs> okay. Each episode, we put on our house slippers, we put on our cozy cardigans, we put on our little sleepy time caps, we put on mittens, we put on bulletproof vests and flak jackets, we put on big pants like MC Hammer wore, and we check our answering machine. <laughs> we ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question we come up with. This time around, it is not that incredibly weird, but it is a question. Vanya, what is that question? Tell us about a photo book that has recently changed your life. It seems like our listeners are either A, not really into photo books, or B, I don't have lives that are changeable. We have a few a few messages, however. Maybe it wasn't a good question. It's Maybe okay. it was not a good question. That is that is possible. It is not a good question. <laughs> I I haven't considered that. Certainly not. So let's push the button. Hello. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey guys, this is Chris Demore. I wanted to mention Latoya Ruby Fraser's book called The Last Cruise. 
which focuses on the closure of a General Motors auto plant in Ohio back in 2019. Uh, it focuses on the United Auto Workers that were affected by that closure and how there were you know, devastating ripple effects uh, throughout their community. It's really powerful stuff, some technically impressive photos interspersed with interviews and stories and things. It's really something to, uh, to, to take in. It's the epitome of sadness when it comes to American jobs and, and life, honestly. It is. It's, 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 I'm not familiar with the photographer and I'm not familiar with the book. Yeah, the renaissancesociety.org has uh, some pictures from, from the art show and it actually looks pretty amazing. I just like normal people, like pictures of normal people that do normal people jobs. Like well, I sure. get so sick. I, I know. Okay. I know that sounds weird, but I live in Los Angeles where everything oh, is true. like, so like, it's just different. People look a particular way and they act a particular way and they're like put together and whatever. And it's bullshit. It's not real. It doesn't feel real to me. So when I see like blue collar workers, I'm like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> like, these are my people. It's men and women, just normal people just trying to make a living. Yeah. And there's something powerful about that. That's so much more powerful than some fucking asshole in a striped suit. I'm sorry. I just like can't Wait, stand it. It just drives me nuts. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. You're thinking of Chicago gangsters, aren't you? <laughs> They're far less deadly than businessmen. So one of my biggest inspirations is Evelyn Hoffer. I hope I'm saying her name right. And I've been trying to look for any of her books forever. I sort of just gave up. On my recent trip to London, I went to the photographer's gallery. I remember it was the last day before they closed for the holidays. And I also went there during like the last 90 minutes. Helen Levitt was on exhibit three floors, including her color work. It was amazing. I get to the bookstore in the basement and right there at the bottom shelf, the last copy, I see it. And I just had a moment because I've always looked up to her and she also does amazing street photography and portraits of artists with 4x5 and seeing her work and knowing about her story is just an incredible inspiration and me finding this book definitely changed my life. That was Ariella um, on Instagram, I believe she is Ariella. If you guys haven't seen any of Evelyn Hoffer's color, you need to right now because it is so rich and incredible. The shadow play like that she does, I just, oh, so good. Uh, Ariella mentioned her story. Uh, Hoffer moved to Geneva to escape the Nazis during World War II, well, actually prior to World War II, then moved to Spain, hoping to continue to escape the Nazis. But then there was Franco and the fascists, and she escaped that and moved to Mexico. So that's her story in a very quick nutshell. She would actually be somebody who it would be fun to do a bit on. Her books are, she did a lot of books, but yeah, they are well out of print and well, very expensive and rare. And I think there's probably a one or two that are, that are collections that would be more easily obtainable, maybe. But yeah, someone that we should consider at some point. I think so. Thank you so much, Ariella. Hi, this is Ferdinand, also known as Ferdbird77 on Instagram. I'd say 
the Diane Arbus Aperture photo book changed my life or how I think about my involvement with subjects, the way that your personal life and your art can sort of become one. And if you're interested in that type of documentary photography, you sort of have to decide whether or not you're going to get involved with your subjects to the point where your personal life and your artwork sort of merges. So that's something that that book made me think about. Now, Diane Arbus was the woman who would get into like the people's faces. I mean, she was like very confrontational, right? I remember we talked about her a little bit in the Imogene Cunningham piece when Imogene was in San Francisco hanging out with the woman who, I forget her name, who eventually ended up teaching Arbus. Mm -hmm. uh, the woman was very confrontational, but Arbus took it to like a whole other level. Now this is a, this Different is time. biased through Imogene's opinion here. So I, I'm not yes. very familiar with Arbus's work, which is weird. I'm probably the only one who isn't maybe. And so I, I, I know of Aperture, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's it. I, I like what he said about her and how he had that moment of like real having that like realization of your art and then your personal life. And, you know, how far do you want to really like get into that? Cause I think I have written down some ideas, maybe possibly using as subjects and they are very personal to me. And it's like, how can I do this in a way that's not just like shocking or anything like that more you know like how can I get someone to look and like feel this in in a way and I think I'm still trying to find that out for myself so that's kind of why it's still on the back burner but I really oh yeah I mean these are these are conversations I I hate this conversation oh my god shut up it just really it really <sighs> is ah uh, you know Eric's I don't literally ruin everything. Well, you know, I guess you do. But I mean, I guess it's something you do need to think about if you photograph people. Not that you can't exploit like a town or an area. You, you certainly can. Yeah, you have to be respectful of the place. Of course. But I think it's much more easy to exploit a person than it is a town. So I, I don't know. It's a conversation I don't want to have or like having. I think it's a conversation we need to have with ourselves. Okay. And this is the last one. We have four and that is it. The last one. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Suzanne from Instagram's B-roll backup. I am such a photo book person in general that I have so many that just have been super pivotal for me in my photography journey. But one recently is, and I think I picked it up last year, it's called Heroes and it's by Jerome Tannen. And it is all female snowboarders. He shot it all on a six by seven, I think a Pentax six by seven. And the fact that he got these most incredible images of these badass women, and then also shot them on film is just insane to me. And it was his book that introduced me to the idea of lith printing. And I just couldn't get enough of how some of the images in his book looked. They're just gritty and high contrast and just absolutely beautiful and fit with this type of image so well. Definitely take a look. It's super cool. I could see you doing that for the rest of your life just 
what, straight up lith printing. Oh yeah. God, I would love to do lith printing. You just, you just, you know, it's it's kind of an intensive. You know, you need like a steamroller or something to get them done. <laughs> <laughs> you need a press, and uh, yeah, I wish I had one. Okay, but you know, just add to the. <laughs> Add to the company. <laughs> I would, oh, I would love to. No, lith printing is, um, it's pretty intensive. Pretty intensive with like heavy rollers and shit. I'm not familiar with mm-hmm. Jerome Tannen though, are you? Mm-mm, it no. It seems like something that's kind of more up your alley. I know, all these books I have like made a new bookmark uh, folder with like books I need to get. So thanks guys. I think the question wasn't what was a photo book that changed your life. It was what photo books should Eric and Vanya buy? Yeah. I mean, I probably should pick up Aperture by Arbus, honestly. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't have that. I don't know. I'm surprised I haven't picked it up somewhere along the way and I'm not sure why. Probably because I told you to get it or something, because usually when I tell you to get something, you you don't get it. Well, about the Valparaiso book, you don't have that one, right? I told that's you to get that, That's not available Sergio. anymore. That's, that's just gone. I know. See, you should have fucking got it when you had the chance. <laughs> no, I don't have that. I don't have our Aperture, and I don't think it's like a conscious choice to not have it, but I don't know. Something about her style has always... Now, like I said, I haven't, I haven't seen a ton of it, but something about her style has always rubbed me the wrong way. And it was never something that I was into. Are you um, talking about Arbus? I am. T- I'm still talking about Arbus. Okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry Suzanne. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'm not at all familiar with Jerome Tannen. I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a, a snowboarder or somebody who's into snowboarding or anything like that. So I think that's probably why it was never on my spectrum. I have no idea. But- I like the idea of shooting sports and then printing it, like like doing a lith print of them. I'd like to mm-hmm. see that because sometimes it doesn't necessarily matter what the subject is, especially when you're looking at like, well, this is how this person prints or something. I I don't know. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I, I the, Well, there's a woman um, who everybody has sent me. I have her book. Don't worry, everybody. She does wet plate and she takes pictures of surfers. Right. And she travels around all over. I mean, she's got, you know, she's got it dialed in. She's got the, my life that I would love. <laughs> it's so neat to see like a long border with like a newish type board and a bathing suit or whatever that looks fairly new. But then it's like in this old process that just makes it look so silvery and old. And the tones are just like completely different than anything you've ever seen. So that kind of same idea, I guess, not exactly the same thing, but can we just gush just two seconds really quick how amazing photography is? Because um, it's sort of what the whole podcast is about, but go ahead. You could literally, there are so many facets to photography. You could really like dive into like absolutely ridiculous alternative processes. You can go far deep into digital and to manipulation. It's just amazing. And it really is something that kind of brings all of us together and books as well. Even if you're not into a particular person, like you said, with our best again, <laughs> let's bring her up. Who? You can You can still appreciate this person's work and see what they were, who they are, how they shot, maybe 
why you wouldn't shoot that way, but also kind of respect the the craft or their sure, craft. Of course. Of course. Uh, I just looked up a little bit of Jerome's work in the Heroes book. I, I, it's something I wouldn't mind seeing. You know, the subject matter, not my cup of tea, but the process, I feel, is really, really fascinating and really interesting. And I like that he's using that mm-hmm. for snowboarding, which is uh, usually you'd think of as, you know, more crisp and clear color. Well, yeah, crisp, clear color, kind of like the newer, because, you know, skiing's like old school and snowboarding yeah. is like this new thing, but taking it and kind of turning it into this like old classic look. So thank you, everybody who has called in and left us a message. We we do actually very much appreciate it. And thanks for the suggestion. I don't know if they were actually suggestions. I assume they were, but thank you. So Vanya, what is the next question? Okay. Which material photography possession do you cherish the most? Material photography possession could be like a camera, a lens, a filter, a roll of a film, strap. a strap. It could be sentimental. Like this is the bag that my grandfather carried, or mm. it could be something that like you've always wanted. Like this is the roll that came with the camera, you know, like the empty spools that come with the cameras that are metal. Um, I'm always like, give me those back. It could be like a wooden spool from an old brownie or something. It doesn't have to be anything that anybody else would give a shit about. But we do. We give a shit about it. So call in, leave us a voice message, and tell us. The weirder, the better. Well, I mean, I don't know how weird you want to get here. How weird can you get? Yeah, let's get weird. Let's get weird. If it gets really weird, I will send that person a roll of film. Color. Provia. Expired. You heard heard it here first. One roll. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) But it's 36 exposures, so make it good. We're the film We're detectives. The detectives. <laughs> we investigate quandaries, mysteries, all sorts of matter related to photography. I'm Charlie. I'm Sarah. Sarah, did you know over 3 million photos get taken in a day? No, but that doesn't surprise me. That seems about right. I know it does based on the technology we have now versus when a photo was a little more precious. But there are so many photos every day, no one's surprised by them. So I want to know what is happening to these photos? Is anyone looking for them? You never see them on the side of a milk carton. So the case I want to solve today is what happens to all the photos that get taken? Mm, This one feels like it's going to be a little existential, I think. (laughs) Some mysteries are. I feel like it's just part of being alive. So what, you know, why don't you tell me what you do with your photos? I do send all my film out for developing. So when my scans and my negatives come back, I have a little filing system. I will post some of the best ones to Instagram. I will post some of them maybe in my print shop. After vacations, a lot of times I like to give them to the people that I was with as souvenirs. You give them like a nice little print from the trip to remember you by. And then on to the next role, you know, that's (laughs) kind of the end of the line for most of them, to be honest. You know, a lot of people say something similar, but I actually have to argue with you. I feel like people do a little more with their photos sometimes than they even realize. Like you, for example, like with your roll roulette where you test out your film film cameras and then you share the images that they take with the camera and then offer them up for sale for people to buy them. You've actually kind of created like this amazing resource of how all oh, these like uh, shoot cameras are. Yeah, dude, uh, a Ken Rockwell for the modern girl, if you will. Yeah. 
So I think like you do more beyond that. You have created a super cool thing. Let me ask you a question first. Let's say you take a roll of film, a normal roll of film, not like for a project or anything, mm -hmm. but you know, and it has 36 exposures. How many of those 36 exposures ever really see the light of day beyond just you seeing them? Well, I guess that depends on the delivery. So I guess I should tell you what I do with my photos before okay. I answer that question. I mean, I have a filing system. I'm usually pretty behind. A lot of times I sit around in piles before I end up filing them in my binder. But I feel like a photo isn't really finalized until like it's in print form. That's like no shade to people who don't print their photos. But for me, like I just feel like it completes the process from like becoming something that I saw, put in the camera, processed. It's real when I can put it in my hand, right? For me, I tend to want to lump them into little collections. I sort them in a way and then I make little zines out of them. So I make a shitload of zines and it's mostly my way of finishing my work in a funny way. And I also, um, I started a photo album a few years ago of my adventures, especially like with my partner and our pets. And so I started printing four by sixes to add to the photo album. And honestly, it's like, I just wanted to do it to like make more photos tangible than the ones that I consider like my art because it's like you also you have all these great photos of your friends and just things you love and your pets and I wanted those to live somewhere besides my phone so I started this album and I'm pretty behind in adding to it I'm like 2018 but I do love the album and I do love knowing that it's there and thumbing through it but anyway <laughs> So how many of my photos see the light of day? I don't fucking know because it's like in what context? Like in a gallery show? I don't know. Maybe like a no. I <laughs> no. I, I I just mean at all. Like for me, I guess if I'm doing a roll of thirty six, like I would say yeah. probably if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, eight of the frames. I'm like I want to share these in some way. It's only a third of the roll that's ever even going on you know like mm -hmm. two-thirds gets cut immediately cutting room floor i'm not looking at those anymore do you know what i mean i do know what you mean but that's interesting because that's such a different question for me because i take a lot of photos that i like and then like i don't always share them on the internet and then if i put them into like a zine or something i might not always do that right away so a lot of times i have like frames that i love that nobody will see for years but that then, but then that's different than the question of like how much of my role is usable, which I also say like varies. Sometimes fucking three and sometimes like 30. And yeah, I but don't know. That's my problem. <laughs> I feel like we must have different ways of looking at the same thing. And yours is yeah. a little bit more circular. You'll come um, back and you'll pick some up and you'll come back and you'll pick some up. So it's almost yes. like this a more amorphous uh, body of work that can kind of change perspective based on like how you're feeling right now. Whereas like totally. my process is a lot more like, linear and forward moving uh -huh. you know and, and i don't really go back and think oh i wonder I, you know i wonder about those other 24 i should what look are, at them again because i honestly photos up to <laughs> yeah. they're definitely not aging like fine wine i'll say that you know but, yeah um, i think for me part of that is just my slow process like some negatives i don't even look at for years which is a whole other thing about me being way behind but I don't know but if I'm I, aging them necessarily. This is also interesting to me because we both yeah. have partners that are also artists, right? Mm -hmm. But in different mediums than we're in mm -hmm. for the most part. And uh, 
I talk to my partner a lot about the completion in terms of art because he's a painter. Uh -huh. And so for him, it's a lot harder to know when you've reached that finish line because uh -huh. you can always add another, oh, and you can always go back and do a little more, you know, it, unless you're painting something like incredibly realistic and his aren't then it, you uh -huh. kind of have to at some point just call a day a day. Do you know what I mean? You and, have to decide when it's done. And I haven't really thought about the idea of like completion in terms of photography mm -hmm. because mine is so, it's like linear and there's such like timestamps on it, but you guys kind mm -hmm. of have me thinking in a new way about it now, honestly. I love it. You have me thinking about it a new way too. And it's also interesting to see other people's process and how they look at it too. It's like, with me, I'm not like, intending to go back i'm just like a little scattered and i'm always doing five or six or 18 projects at once so i do tend to work in a circular way because of that and i love how you described it as a, like an amorphous blob of work because that is kind of how i work and then seeing also how you work in a more straightforward process it's a lot too like how you think and present as a person that i know and i think that is just really fascinating to it contrast and compare it's also nice that we have um such an understanding that i can say your art is like an amorphous blob and you're like i feel so seen thank you for that compliment <laughs> because i meant it as a compliment and you know that yeah i definitely did i do love that yeah. You know, another artist actually that kind of challenges my perception of like completion or when is the, how's the photo being seen uh -huh. and how the photo is being presented is Liz Potter, who I know you Fucking also know. Legend. 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 Liz Potter photography is the handle for those of you on Instagram. Um, she does a lot of work where she'll you know, take a Polaroid and then make the Polaroid a Polaroid transfer and mm -hmm. then make that into something else. I bought something from her once that was a painting on a Polaroid that was then put into a cardboard pop-up frame that she also made. Amazing. Are you kidding so, me? Yeah, she's you know, so she's taking the photographs and then mixing in other mediums and or not even sometimes just her handicraft also then becomes part of the completion process, which is very interesting to me as yeah. well, because because probably of my linear thinking, like I do tend to just think of the more obvious things. And so when mm -hmm. I see people doing like that, it kind of like makes me think, oh, well, maybe I can do something else more interesting with these other images and stuff. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love Liz's work. I love that she's inspiring you. I also feel kind of similar to how I imagine Liz feels where like I always trying to think of ways to take photos beyond the second dimension really which is maybe why I feel that way about printing as completion but Liz really does take it to another level she made one of her recent projects is oh I forgot what she called it. I want to say it's vacation flags I don't know but it's like a string of flags mm -hmm. that have all her Polaroids on it it's fucking genius and it's fucking beautiful I love yeah. it yeah yeah, I, I saw it. those as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I just, so great. Yeah, so I took a survey of what other people do with their photographs because I just kind of wanted to hear what other people are doing out there. Um, and I am going to read to you some of what people said. So one person said they like to make contact sheets, rate their favorites, and make small prints of each of them. And then they put them away for a while so they can look at them in the future and get a clear idea of how they look with less sentimental attachments. I think that was a really interesting response. I was kind of looking to see how people like basically took their photos to another level, like Liz is an example. But I also got a lot of responses like this that talk about people's 
photographic viewing process. So I thought this was really cool. I love to see a contact sheet. Sometimes when you go oh, to yeah. photography exhibit, they'll also have like a few contact sheets as part of their exhibit. And I love to see the entire contact sheet. Oh yeah, me too. And then it was, was there like a Magnum book where they show a bunch of their photographer contact mm. sheets? That would be amazing. There is. I've never owned it, but I've seen it. Somebody buy it and bring it over. <laughs> All right, another friend says they like to turn them into photo post postcards, which I love this idea because I love mail. Postcards are most oftentimes photographs. So I love the idea of like having a personal photo on something that you mail to somebody with a letter. Um, another friend says they like to use them as desktop images, which I thought, think is a great idea. You got a little digital frame right in front of you all the time. And they, of course, make darkroom prints and then photo books for friends and family. Super cute. I love it. That's great. And then well, this is one of my favorite responses. Another friend says they like to use them in journaling and mixed media. That's beautiful. I'm sure the journals are amazing. One day they'll be teaching those journals in school. I just know it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, another friend makes the calendar. Another friend makes four by six prints, marks them with the date, location, and description, and then adds them to an album. And I love this. Obviously, I said I make albums too, but I'm not as meticulous as this. I bet this is a really beautiful record of their life and adventures. You no. know, um, you mentioned Roll Roulette earlier. Yeah. And, but as like the camera thing. But it actually started as kind of a contact sheet idea. When we were talking about contact sheets, it just reminded uh -huh. me because it started on my account where I always send my film out in batches. Like I don't mm -hmm. send one rollout, I'll wait till I have like five. So me then too. you get all of these scans at once and there's 36 frames on a roll and there's 36 numbers on a roulette wheel. And I thought it'd be so fun if people just sent me a number and I would send them whatever picture that was, no matter if it was good or bad. And then we could kind of have a conversation about it. Or if it was really bad, they could roll again, they could try another <laughs> one. But it, it, it's been a really fun game and a lot of people have adopted it and also do it on their accounts because it gives you a chance to one, share those images that aren't being seen to show that we all make mistakes. Yep. We all take bad pictures, you know, like I'm still getting my finger in pictures at times, you know, stuff like that. That's like a rookie mistake. Yeah, same. But interesting conversations usually come from it, you know, so. Ooh. It's kind of a fun thing to get some of those pictures that are being taken that aren't really seen. Mm -hmm. it, it is almost like, it's like a little, cause I always just DM it to them. So it is almost like, it's like a little postcard in a way. Oh, it totally is. I love it. I've always loved the rule roulette game. I always feel like yeah. I get my personality pick, but I do also love how you're bringing up that it creates conversation. And I was thinking too, how it gets more of those photos out there that you may yeah. be like, don't necessarily want to put out there or maybe you just didn't think we're great sometimes other people think things are great that you look yeah. over and puts them there i love it digital postcard an e-card if you yeah. will yeah and it's it's an open source game so please anyone <laughs> take it change it do whatever like it's just i always tell people like they're like that was fun and i'm like it's way more fun to be on the other end of it like hosting the Ooh. game so like Ooh. definitely take it for a try you know man i should roll roulette I do also do large batches. Yeah. And I do like it when other people see it. I mean, I've seen other people play roulette and I do think it's catching on. So what do we think about these photos? What are the conclusions of this case? Well, you know, the more evidence that's turning up, the more I think that this case isn't closed and maybe never will close. This is an ongoing case and I think that's okay.
I think that already it has kind of opened my mind to some new things <laughs> and thinking about it in a much different way than I thought about it before. So yeah, this one is like, maybe this one's like an X-Files maybe, I feel like. <laughs> Ooh, I love an X-Files. Definitely, Great. Sam. Case, All right. case open for the better. Signing off. Until next time. For our interview today, we are dipping back a, a couple of dev parties ago where we talked very quickly to Alan Marks. He, I think, what, <gasps> you developed some film for him? Was there any dev party? I did. He is my new best friend <laughs> here in, in Los Angeles. I absolutely adore him so much. So he has a new book out called Palindrome 9119. We are going to be talking to him about that book and I guess discussing the perks of being Vanya's best friend, which is apparently podcast related <laughs> all the time. Let's give him a call. It's Hello. working. It is. It is. Hello. <laughs> hey there. How are you guys? Good. Good. Oh my gosh. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, once again, uh, you are the quickest turnaround, I think, that we've had. I mean, we've never had anybody for Dev Party, so uh, I guess it just goes without saying. Oh, oh wow, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, had, okay. we've had people on twice, but never in like this kind of... Such this, quick succession. It, it yeah. is. It is. It's like you were barely gone and you're back. It's like turning, it's like turning pages in a book. <laughs> it's exactly like that. So we, yeah, we want to talk a little bit about your book. Great. I would love to talk about it. So the book is called Palindrome 9119. Is that how you, you would you would say it? Yeah, that's a, yes. Okay. Yes. That is, that is how I would say it. Yes. Okay. That is how I say it. The photographs in the book span the period of 1991 to 2019. And 9119 is a palindrome. I love a palindrome. Oh, nice. In making the book, trying to figure out like what it's about, that kind of presented itself more than halfway through the process. And that sort of informed many of the decisions that went into um, the sequencing and the design. Could you explain what happened to you that essentially inspired the creation of this book? Well, the main thing that happened was about six years ago, um, Uriel, who is my best friend, we were a couple for seven years now, you know, we're not a couple anymore, but we are best friends, we're family. They suggested to me, you know, you should get a scanner. I think Yuri looked online at Sammy's camera to see if they had any scanners. And of course it was that week between Christmas and New Year's. So there happened to be one on sale. So we got in the car, went to Sammy's. I drove away with a scanner. The six months that followed, I started to scan, you know, like 28 years worth of negatives. Wow. Thousands of images. Sort of when it got to like a point where I could, where I could see like my work, you know, that I had done up until that point. And I came to a few conclusions. The first one being like, oh, I don't suck. I have a point of view, like I have a certain aesthetic, like I kept having this nagging thought in my head of like, God, I have all this, like this, this past that I need to just sort of like reconcile and put brackets around in some way and just contextualize. Cause I, it feels like I'm just like dragging around this stuff, this work that I'm proud of, but 
You know, like when you're driving behind one of those trucks that's just full of stuff mm-hmm. and you're on the freeway and you're afraid everything's just going to come flying out of it onto you. Oh, yeah. I kind of felt like that truck. And I was like, all that <laughs> stuff needs to be put in place. So that was the thought. And then um, through a series of events, I met this man named Aaron Tilford, who's a uh, designer and an editor. And he also does a yearly uh, art and literary journal called Spunk, like right before the pandemic started, like if he would be interested in working with me on making a book out of like all this old stuff, he agreed. And then we got started. When I looked at it, it says 9119. But then when you start to actually think about like how much time that is and how much how big of a body of work you have created, I could imagine it must have been really, really difficult and maybe even emotional to kind of go through decades of your past and kind of revisit some of these memories and people in your life. Uh, So what went into selecting the photos? From scanning all the negatives, I was forced to like categorize things, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So I had like portraits, landscapes, light studies, um, locations, you know, I kind of came up with categories. So a lot of these people some I've lost contact with, you know, and I tried to contact as many people as I could uh, to let them know that I'm doing this. But, you know, some people have died, unfortunately. The person on the cover, actually, like, I know his name is Scotty, but I don't remember his last name. We used to work together. This was in the mid-90s. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram, you know, like, we lost touch way before that all came to be. And, you know, the book is dedicated to my friend Fabian. Um, Fabian was my best friend and he was my first friend who died of AIDS, right? So it was the first person like, like, you know, my best friend. Yeah. And it was shocking. And he died in 1991. So, and also in sort of, and he was an incredible photographer and, you know, losing him was like, I kind of like lost a connection to like a creative source you know Mm -hmm. so the years that followed like the first probably two or three years that followed that you know were very confusing and um was sort of like me trying to find another way to like connect to the creative source so like the stuff that's in the beginning of the book is me you know trying Mm -hmm. to go on you know and then like a lot of other people died also from hiv and aids and um 90 to 95 was just a very it was a very very hard time like i was in my 20s i didn't there weren't a lot of people to talk to. There weren't a lot of resources. You know, I sort of documented things that were going on in my tiny little corner of the queer community I was a part of. You know, I talk about um, in the introduction when my appendix burst in 2013. <laughs> like I was walking around with a burst appendix for like a week, you know, like, oh, something's wrong. I don't feel well. You know, <laughs> finally I was like hallucinating and was like, maybe I should go to the emergency room. So I should have died. Like, that's like, that's like, I should have died then. And um, when I didn't, and, you know, I recovered, which was like a six week process, which gave me a lot of time to think, I kind of realized that, like, I love doing this work, I should have died. And if I would have died, like all these negatives in these boxes that I had been dragging around from like, shitty apartment to shitty apartment Mm -hmm. in my 20s and 30s, and you know, like into my 40s, if I would have died in that apartment, all that stuff would have just been thrown away. It made it shifted my thinking of like, okay, I do love this work. Why have I been treating it like a stepchild? You know what I mean? Like, why have I been? I don't want to upset any stepchildren out there, but like, why? (laughs) 
why have I been treating it like, you know, with such neglect, right? The book is in a sequence. You know, the photos are sequenced, like, yes. like all books are. This one happens to be chronological. Correct. How important was the chronological sequence to all of this? First rough draft of the book was not in chronological sequence. It mm-hmm. was informed by like the aesthetics of each image, right? They flowed and 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 um so that was that, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was tasked with the job of doing the writing, writing the introduction and some of the other writing. And then when I had that in a solid place, that writing informed the sequence. Interesting. When I received the rough draft of it being chronological, at first I was jarred by it because I was so used to seeing the first draft, right? <laughs> and and what was jarring to me at first was like I needed to sort of shift gears to get into the rhythm of that. And but once I did, I was I was I was there. You know, the earliest images date to 1991. What was it like to revisit work from that era? The stuff that I thought was really great back in my 20s, like the work I thought was so good in my 20s, I kind of looked at now and was like, oh, okay, maybe not so groundbreaking. But the stuff that I didn't understand in my 20s, I understand now. And I'm like, oh, I was onto something. Like I was actually onto something. And it makes me grateful that I saved everything, A. And B, like I don't shoot digital at all. I just like I have my phone and like, that's about as far as I go. Like I, I, I noticed with people who shoot digital is they'll scroll through as they're shooting, like in the moment of shooting and delete, 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 delete. And because we can't do that, like we have a record and five years later, 10 years later, we'll stumble across something that we didn't see the first time around. I need to shoot it. I need to have the this experience in real time with the person, the place or the thing. Take the film to the lab the next day, the next month, the next year sometimes. And then I can see it. Like, I can't see it now. So going back to 1991, uh, in what ways are you still the same photographer that you were back then? Well, I will say this. uh, The cornerstone of my creative practice is to do it wrong. That that is still that was my philosophy then. That's my philosophy now. I want to know all the rules. You know what I mean. I want to be familiar with the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to like be able to rely on and lean on like the basics. But I also want to like you know flip the bird at all that too, and just like be like, well, what happens if I do this? Or yeah. I know I'm not supposed to do X, Y, or Z, but I'm gonna do it and see what happens. And yeah. You know, like I still and hopefully will always try to like throw my arms as wide open as possible to failure. So looking at the book, I was looking at it this this morning and I don't read introductions before looking at photos for some reason, but I don't read them before. And so I was looking through it and I saw like, okay, 2013, something happened because Mm. there is a definite break in like what you were doing before 2013 and what you were doing after 2013. So w- w- could you explain your shift in focus after around? I've never not thought of myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. I always have. But when my appendix burst and I was, you know, in my like recovery, my seriousness about it shifted, right? Where I was like, yes, I am an artist, absolutely. And if I would have died by Maybe someone would have remembered that, but probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So I just I just got more serious and started to have more fun and started to just like be more productive, right? Just be more productive. I just wanted to like be productive and also just be more involved. I wanted to be more involved. I wanted to be on my feet. I wanted to be more 
visible, you know, definitely in my twenties and my thirties, like I was happy to lean against a wall and be invisible. Like I was happy for that. I still feel comfortable in that place, but it doesn't make me so happy. About two years ago, I started hearing a lot of people talk about this thing called imposter syndrome. And I kept hearing that and I was like, what, what is, <laughs> what is that? Like I didn't I know, what right? talking about. And I, so I, you know, talked to some people about it and they explained it to me and I was like, wow, I have never felt like that. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Like, I don't feel like a fake. The thing inside me that compels me to like draw and paint or cook or take photos or do gardening or like do like anything that is like, generative or creative like that thing inside me it's just there and it's a hundred percent real it's not going anywhere it is undeniable i've tried to kill it other people have tried to kill it the world is constantly trying to kill it in all of us all the time absolutely it's not going anywhere it's not dying like so that is real now I know what it feels like to be in the company of people who are more talented than me more successful than me more ambitious than me but being with those people never made me feel fake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, do you think it's a generational thing? I mean, we're both Generation X, and I think right. we just didn't give a shit about that stuff. Well, no one was talking about it. It no. wasn't in the air. <laughs> you just, you do what you do and kind of fuck everybody else. And whatever. Everybody was okay with that. Yeah. For anyone that's listening that, you know, wants to identify with the narrative of imposter syndrome. I mean, I I invite you to dig a little bit deeper and challenge that narrative as the false narrative that I think it actually is. It's like the thing that's inside you that compels you is 100% real. No one's going to fucking take it away from you and abandon that narrative. It's doing you no favors. So are you a different photographer now in the post-Peladrone? Well, I am doing something different now. The way I have shot my entire life is like, you know, I'm out in the world. I have a camera. I'm with people. I'm in a place I'm shooting. I'm observing. I'm just stealing moments here and there. You know, what I'm trying to do now, you know, with a couple of projects, particularly that white shirt project that I told you about, like I've seen. Yeah. I'm being more intentional. Good. I'm planning things. I'm being more intentional. I have a, a specific, backdrop I like to use on purpose, you know, I've never really been like, you know, a person to like make a mood board or do anything like that, but I'm starting to like look through books and reference things and put, put post-its on certain pages so that I refer to them later. I'm starting to do things like that now, which is, which is new. And I have a lot of reference, right. And I'm starting to keep folders, you know, on my laptop of like images I like and more on purpose and more intentional and more planned. I don't know that I like so much. I don't know that I'm so comfortable with it, but I'm doing it because I've never done that. Curious to see what the results of that are. And I, and I, you know, I won't know for a couple of years as I start to like amass the work. Well, I guess that, that kind of covers everything. So where can people find Palindrome 91 to 19? Well, this book can be found. uh, I'm going to, I have to, do the work to turn my Instagram page into a shopping page. That is, that is my, that is my assignment for the week. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I imagine it's not too difficult. No, you I can't can do imagine it. that it is. No. I mean, and then uh, that, that will be the first place. And then like, I'll expand outward from there. And and I do want to have some sort of an event at some point, mm-hmm. um, like a launch party, some sort of an event. I'm not sure where or when, but uh, cause I just like, 
received all the books. So I'm like, they're all sitting here like in boxes in this very small space. <laughs> it's a good feeling. Well, the the book is called Palindrome 9119. Uh, hit Alan up at Alan being Alan on Instagram. That is A-L-A-N. And thank you so much for coming on. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. The TV show MASH ran from 1972 to 1983, best year ever. It depicted the fictional 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital Unit during the Korean War. Unlike the TV show, which ran for 11 seasons, the Korean War lasted three years, from 1950 to 1953. It aired on CBS during the latter part of the Vietnam War and often slyly commented on it under the guise of fiction. The basic premise for each episode of this sitcom was the daily life of the war when interrupted by something funny or horrible. It was a dark comedy. So, Vanya, do you have any personal remembrances of MASH? I know it ended the year you were born, so this would have been in syndication and reruns. Any <laughs> any memory of them? Yes. Oh, it was a TV show you obviously loved a lot. <laughs> No, absolutely oh, no. not. I oh want to. Okay. So basically it was like, I was still up and I was watching TV and it would come on and I'd be like, oh, like so annoyed. <laughs> I would literally rather turn off the TV than watch MASH. Wow. So I've never actually watched it, MASH ever in my entire life. Okay. So this is your first episode, I guess, first two episodes of MASH. Yes. I have gone okay. 39 years without watching MASH. And now you have ruined that. For me, MASH, I remember MASH being on the air as it was being broadcast. Definitely remember my parents watching it because I remember the the opening strains of the theme song, which is uh, oddly enough titled Suicide is Painless. It's actually an interesting song and you guys should definitely check out the lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics are dark. Yeah, why are we talking about this on a film photography podcast? So every once in a while, we here at All Through a Lens, we'd like to take a break and have a movie night. In this case, we're, we're gonna settle in, grab some popcorn, and we've watched a couple of episodes of MASH. Exactly, that's exactly what we did. We watched the episodes titled Snap Judgment and Snappier Judgment. It's a two-parter that involves the thievery of the first Polaroid land camera. And that's why we're talking about it. So before we get into the episode itself, I wanted to give a little bit of technical background on MASH. So unlike most Ooh. sitcoms at the time, MASH was shot on, I think it was 35 millimeter film, though I've also seen 16, and I guess they could have switched back and forth. It was shot in Academy Ratio, which makes me think it was 35. And that's a little bit wider than 4-3 ratio that TVs use, meaning that when it was broadcast, both sides were cropped out a little bit when it aired. The version that is available now on streaming as of this recording, Hulu, is an HD scan from the original negatives or prints. It is cropped to fit the 16-9 TVs of today. This means we gain the bits on the sides of the frame that were originally lost when the show aired, but we do lose quite a bit from the top and the bottom. Now, 
I know nobody likes physical media anymore, except for me. I love physical media. Unfortunately, MASH is not available on Blu-ray, but maybe someday it will be, probably not. And if it is, hopefully we'll get the full Academy ratio shot in HD. It also has a laugh track, even though it wasn't filmed in front of an audience. CBS insisted upon it since it was a sitcom. The showrunners fought against it and the network compromised by agreeing not to use the laughs during the surgery scenes and in some very special episodes. So, all right, let's get into the episode itself. So, well, before we start, what did you think overall of MASH since this is your first your first experience with it? I think 10-year-old me is definitely a little different than me now. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Okay. So they're like, they're like taking care of people. It's a hospital. Okay. This is, this is kind of neat. Also, you know how they say that like TV adds like 10 pounds? Yeah, I, I guess so. Well, I think for like Italians or in this case, Lebanese, it actually adds inches. By inches, I mean inches on your nose because holy mother of God, that guy's nose is okay. amazing. <laughs> well, let's just get into the episode. Then we can talk about Klinger's nose all, all you want. Okay. So how does the episode open? Horseshoes. Horse, have you ever played horseshoes? I mean, I guess I threw I threw a horseshoe before. Okay, so no. It opens with a game of horseshoes between Father Mulcahy, Colonel Potter, BJ Honeycutt, and Hawkeye Pierce. And Colonel Potter, you'll remember from Dragnet, Joe, Joe Friday's partner. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Honeycutt and Pierce, um, Alan Alda, and, and of course, Mike Farrell played Honeycutt, BJ Honeycutt. And, and according to BJ Honeycutt, the BJ stood for whatever you wanted it to. Mm. So they open on that with with horseshoes and then Klinger comes up and he's got a package for Hawkeye. Mm-hmm. So Hawkeye opens it and he discovers. Hey, look at this. It's a Polaroid. Looks like oh. a camera to me. It is. The new kind that develops its own picture. I've heard of those. It's like it's got its own little drugstore inside. Papadopoulos. Gregor Papadopoulos. This is fantastic. You can get a finished picture in 60 seconds. Well, wonders never cease. I still can't get used to indoor plumbing. <laughs> How am I ever going to thank him? So, kind of a commercial for Polaroid at this point, I guess. Yeah, I love that drugstores are synonymous with, like, film, you know, even back then. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And even before then. So, the camera that they have was the first Polaroid land camera, which is Model 95. It was the first instant camera, the first Polaroid. And it was released in 1948. Polaroid went on to make 1.5 million of of these. Wow, that's intense. They retailed for $89.75, which is about 900 bucks in today's money. They had a 135 millimeter lens at a F11, had four shutter speeds, one eighth of a second to one sixtieth. And they are selected by what they called Polaroid numbers. So we'll get to that in a second. How you load it. Did you see a video on how you loaded these things? A long time ago, I was thinking of of taking one and, and taking it apart. So... Yeah. <laughs> they load sort of like a 120 camera, but there's like a lot of kind extra of. paper. There's a ton of paper oh, yeah. with these. Well, most land cameras, it's all paper. It's all like, a, it's a lot of waste. Yeah. So how you shoot it after you have it loaded is you've got a meter or judge the light and they use Polaroid numbers one to eight. And that was basically EV9 through EV17, which maybe doesn't mean much more to you than the Polaroid numbers, but a sunny day would be EV15. So super bright sunny and like with snow would be EV17. And then very like 
like sunset, like after after sunset would be like EV9 or Polaroid 1. I'm sure they had the flash bar and all that uh, stuff. Or was that I, later on? Yeah, I really don't know how to shoot these things. I have no idea. But to focus it, you would use the scale focus. Ugh, I hate scale focus. I which is funny because like all Nikonos are scale focus. Yeah, oh, I hate it. So <laughs> after you get the shot, you would develop it by... It's it's similar to the crack and peel, sort of. So you'd flip the film release button on the back and you'd pull the paper tab out with your right hand until it stops. And that's when the developing started because the it would move something to something and then the picture would be- like the rollers. Yeah, the negative would be, uh, I guess, developed at that point. And then you would tear mm -hmm. off the paper. So- we have a bit from the instruction manual. Vanya, would you be so kind? Pull it about as hard and rapidly as you might pull down a window shade. Not hard enough to pull the shade off the roll or the film off the spool, but not slowly and hesitantly either. The film will stop automatically. So at that point, yeah, I had to wait. And each emulsion had different developing times. Then you'd open a smaller door on the big door it's like you know like an old door that has a little tiny door yeah. it was a little bigger than that but you'd dig <laughs> it up with your fingernails and you'd pull it away from the paper and that negative would stay on the paper and you would then tear it up tear the print off but you're not done yet because the paper was on a roll you know it was all rolled up so you had to according to the according to the manual remove the curl by drawing the print face up over a straight edge and you're, you're still not done, especially if you were, well, only if you were shooting the black and white because you had to then coat them. So each roll of black and white came with a small vial of print coating, they called it, and a little squeegee-like thing that you would brush on a plastic coating that would harden on the print. You'd brush it six to eight times and, and then finally you were done making your so-called instant picture. Yeah, but I mean, come on. All right. That well, was old style. There's more craziness at the 4077 MASH tonight at 11.30. Both Hawkeye and BJ, which I, I, at that era of the show, they were called Honeycutt and Pierce. So I'm going to probably go back between the two. Uh, Honeycutt and Pierce think they have the right to the camera. Each of them think this because they both work on the patient and they argue a bit until Colonel Potter steps in. Sounds to me like that camera belongs to the both of you. If you can't buy that, I'll be glad to cut it in half. Uh, how does it feel to be the co-owner of a Polaroid Land camera? Yeah, okay, you can be co-owner, but I get to use it first. Why you? Because I know photography. Oh, you do, do like you? Like the back of my hand. Then we move to the swamp, and now this is your first exposure to the swamp. Did you notice anything interesting about it? They don't focus on it in this episode, but did you notice anything in the background of the swamp? No, was I supposed to? Yes. What the fuck? They run a still. Oh shit, really? Yeah, you can see it sort of in the background. So we're entering this shelter where Hawkeye BJ and Charles Emerson Winchester III live. Mm, there we go. <laughs> Charles is, I think, your favorite character. He <laughs> is a wealthy and snobbish Bostonian, a mass hole. Yeah. And he is also apparently a photographer of sorts. I don't understand it. What are we doing wrong? Everything. Well, how are the photogs coming? Brilliantly. 
Pierce is demonstrating his mastery of black and white photography. Oh, really? And I suppose you could do better. I could. So could J. Fred Muggs. Okay, a couple of things about that. I, I, I love the expression black and what photography. Yeah, that's funny. So much of mine really needs to be called that because a lot of times. Yeah, black and what? Yeah, black and what photography. I feel like I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and have you heard of J. Fred Muggs before this? Mm-mm. Okay, so since it was taking place during the Korean War, a lot of the references are contemporary, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. This one kind of is, kind of isn't. J. Fred Muggs was a chimpanzee brought to New York and kind of kept captive by NBC for their morning show from 1953 to 1957. I guess that's not too long, but still, yeah, that's awful. Oh, he, I, yeah, I think it was just from NBC for that long. I think after, after that time, he went to somebody else. How long do chimpanzees live for? A long time. I think they live till they bite your face off. Now, Charles does not know how to use the Polaroid. That is incredibly far, far below him. I have a superb collection of the finest German equipment, including Rolleiflex, Leica, of course. Major, looks like you and I are fellow shutterbugs, except I always buy American. I got me a brownie Hawkeye. Oh, really? Why don't you come by sometime? I'll autograph it. Oh. Sorry to interrupt the photo session, but we've got wounded on the way. One bleak picture to another. Okay, can I just say, I, I, I love MASH so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, Charles is like a Leica guy. <laughs> He's like one of those gear guys that is super snobby and only shoots Leicas or German like German cameras, yes, which is hilarious. He, he very much is that. So the whole thing of Colonel Potter taking goofy snapshots ends up being a running gag through much of the first episode. He talks about shooting a pony with a hat on, which honestly sounds adorable. It and absolutely his does. Wife holding the moon, and Charles is. He's too snobby, obviously, for that. He cannot appreciate it. He doesn't understand it. the art. <laughs> he, he can't appreciate it. But since Colonel Potter outranks him, he sort of has to take it. So mm-hmm. the next scene is the first OR scene. A lot of MASH, not this episode, but a lot of MASH takes place in the OR, which is kind of, to me, was always the more interesting places uh, that, that they shot. What did you think of it? Yeah, I, I thought it was odd because... When you first see it, you're like, wait, so they're just all like in this random camp room cutting people open. <laughs> okay, sounds good. And just nonchalant talking. But then I remember, yeah, that's basically what doctors do. <laughs> they just yeah. open you up and, you know, start singing and talking shit about you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they, you know, forget a couple things inside you. <laughs> Happens. So there's a little bit more camera talk and people talking about taking, you know, mastering 60 second photography. And there's two big plot points that are dropped here. First is that a lot of stuff is getting stolen, which they they mentioned in the opening, but also that Klinger leaves to get penicillin. Klinger is the large nosed fellow, the Lebanese fellow who. Yes. <laughs> you want to talk about his nose for a little bit more? It's just ama- it's just incredible, you know? I, <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I should have gave MASH a chance because when I was a kid, I thought that my nose was that big. And I still kind of think it was for my face. Like, my, my nose now looks small compared because my face is so round. I'm, like, basically like a little cherub baby doll now. But my nose, I felt 
was huge. <laughs> and I went to school with a bunch of like white American people. So my nose was different than everybody else's. So I, I've always kind of had like this weird thing with like big noses. I really, really like big noses and kind of like one of my, um, all, all my really good friends have big noses. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I just like them. They're so fun. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I just saw that and I was like, wow, it's just, it's incredible. It is. The next scene opens and Martha Hotlips Houlihan, she's setting up a shot of everyone on the 4077 to send to her mom. Mm -hmm. But that's also when Hawkeye discovers that the camera has been stolen. The camera's been stolen. What? what? Oh, the camera? Oh, oh, it. Probably a representative of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Film. What do you mean stolen? Uh, our resident klepto must have lifted it while we were in OR. Damn it, I've had it up to my eyebrows with all this filching. Filching, also, my favorite word right now. What is that? To steal something? I think it's oh, okay. an older English word, but oh, I love oh, okay. it. We really need to use it more. So, <laughs> act two, we open a week later in the mess tent. A mess tent is also a pretty common set for MASH. So, Pierce and Honeycutt ask Klinger if he's heard anything, and no, he hasn't. Klinger is, the, is like the clerk kind of runs things. If you remember MASH with Radar, uh, when Radar left, Klinger took over his position. So they call Central Intelligence to see what happened to the report that Klinger filed. What? Uh, uh, Polaroid. It's a, it's a, it's a camera. It, it, it developed its own pictures. No, I'm not kidding you. No. No, this is not Crazy Al of Special Services. <laughs> would, would you just... I'm... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could take those kinds of pictures, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. No, I haven't taken one because I don't have the camera because it's been stolen, remember? Hawkeye would absolutely have taken those pictures. <laughs> it's just hilarious that even then, that was what people were thinking about. Polaroid, I mean, I can't imagine that Land didn't have that in mind when he invented the Polaroid. Like, at least privacy. Maybe he was too yeah, of course. uptight or whatever. But Polaroid is quick and it's easy, but so are people, you know, why not? So sure. as it turns out, Klinger never filed the report. Oh, I know. To make up for it, he asks Rosie, who was, oddly enough, she was just in 10 episodes. I remember Rosie like a lot, but out of like the 230 or whatever MASH episodes, she was only in 10, which really shocked mm. me. Uh, Klinger wants to know where he can find the black market because he wants to find the camera. Yeah, Little Chicago. <laughs> yeah, and Rosie agrees to talk to him for $5 and then three more dollars and she'll tell him where it is. Hmm, smart. Klinger drives his Jeep to Little Chicago. Okay, so Klinger finds the Polaroid. Hey, buddy, I'm looking for a special kind of camera. Makes its own pictures, you push a button, pull it out from the other side, wait a while, and... Ah, oh, you mean Polaroid. You lucky. This brand new, come in last week. I had a feeling you did. How much? For you, 80 bucks. 80 bucks? Forget it. All I got is 50. Okay, in that case, 75. Take it or leave it. I'm telling you, I've only got 50. How about 60? No. I love that. I only got 50. <laughs> 60. All right, sold. <laughs> <laughs> so $60. Uh, $60 was about, uh, is about $600 in today's money. Insane. You can buy one for $6 right now. $600 is about the price you would pay 
for a uh, kind of what do they have one of the the four by five adapter on the back of it? Mm-hmm. I think Razzle is the company doing it or the person doing it. Why would they name something Razzle? I, uh, I guess so because silly. of Razzle Dazzle. <laughs> you gotta have a little Razzle Dazzle. Oh, it's nothing works. Exactly. So the guy who sells the camera is listed as peddler number two. He's an interesting fellow. He was played by Richard Lee Sung. He actually served in the Korean War and he received a Purple Heart for his service. Uh, He was on a bunch of MASH episodes in the 70s and 80s and he was in like the Apple Dumpling Gang, which is a wonderful movie. He was in Happy Days, he was in SWAT, he was in Incredible Hulk, What's Happening, Quincy, and, and of course, Airwolf. But I knew him from the 1974 black exploitation movie Dynamite Brothers, also known as East Meets Watts. It's a little bit of racism for everybody there. East Meets Watts. Wow. <laughs> so Klinger, on the way back from Little Chicago, is stopped by the MPs and he is searched. Of course. He is found with the camera. And of course, a big misunderstanding happens and he is arrested during the commercial break. Which is sort of weird, but it was kind of a, a sitcom-y thing to do. It's a good way to make time pass very quickly. Uh, so when we come back from commercial break, the MPs return the camera to Hawkeye and Pierce. Oh, come to Papa. I thought I'd never gaze into that little lens again. Already attached to it, even though they still haven't taken a picture with it. You know, they haven't, have they? I mean, they might have. They said it wasn't working because they couldn't figure it out. I think we're actually going to get to the camera's first picture. Hawkeye lets slip that Klinger filed the report late. And the MP, well, he's telling the MP that. And he decides, uh, the MP decides he's going to use it as evidence against Klinger. This is why you don't talk to the police, people. <laughs> you just don't. Just don't. If, they're, if they have a badge, keep your mouth shut. If that's the lesson you're going to take away from anything in this episode, it is absolutely that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's like... Obviously, don't steal and all of that. But I think the lesson is don't talk to the cops. (laughs) Honestly. Always always and forever. I mean, Klinger gets in trouble and and arrested for talking to the cops. Hawkeye gets Klinger in more trouble from talking to the cops. Mm -hmm. They all would have kept their mouth shut. They just dig themselves a bigger hole. Mm, It's true. So everyone insists, though, that Klinger just couldn't have stolen. He's such a nice guy. He's around them all the time. The MP wants to use Hawkeye and BJ as witnesses against Klinger. Because they technically are. It was their camera. So a little bit later, Klinger, back at the 4077, I guess he was released. I'm not sure how it works in the army. And they're all helping him with his case. I guess it's like he's awaiting trial. So yeah, basically. Probably put him back to work. It's not like they're going to just give him like time off. That's true. Hang out. Yeah, that is true. There's definitely going to be an investigation. So the next scene Ah, oh, yes, my favorite. I think the first photo taken with the camera, probably. Yes, by the Leica guy, who is the shit, obviously, when it comes to cameras, right? He is amazing. <laughs> so this is Charles, and he is caught by Honeycutt and Pierce taking a picture of himself with, like, from dressed from the waist up, but in his, like, officer's uniform. He's trying to get a really nice, nice, proper photo of him in his officer's uniform. Um, mm-hmm, sure. Mm. It didn't, it didn't work. Uh, he offers to show Hawkeye and BJ the proper use of this toy. And they're all, they all kind of talk about the investigation then. And then we, we do get to see the photo and it is just a picture of his, his naked little knees. Yeah, is, it's hilarious. It's such a typical male photographer uh, to be the photographer, but also be taking selfies and pictures of themselves as well. 
So the next scene, the investigator arrives, and if you've ever watched Babylon 5, you know who this guy is, Peter Jurassic. It's Londo from Babylon 5. So Klinger, with the help of everyone, they lay it on super thick about how good of a clerk he is. And they, he, Londo says that he doesn't, I don't know what his name was actually, the investigator, I guess. I'm, I'm sure he has a name, but he's Londo. He didn't appreciate how they insulted his intelligence, but since there's no real evidence against Klinger, he agrees to close the investigation. So Yay. show over. We got like two minutes to go. Let's have a couple of funny scenes. Music. And then roll no. credits, we're done, right? No, wrong. So in typical sitcom tropiness, Rosie comes over and tells Colonel Potter to tell Klinger that things are getting pretty hot in Little Chicago and it's a bad time to sell anything. Again, don't talk to the cops or around the cops. Yeah, I mean, okay. Obviously she didn't write that because no woman would ever just randomly go to a table and say that in front of someone she did not know, so. Especially Rosie. Rosie would know way better than that, but. Of course, but we need something. Yeah. So we learn that Klinger will be brought up on charges and will be court-martialed and if guilty, <gasps> will be dishonorably discharged. sad and we go out on the saddest mash music ever heard this is the music they would play when like somebody is dying but in this case Klinger is just going to be investigated and possibly dishonorably discharged so that's the end of the first episode but you stopped there what were your thought what were you thinking at that point I just I knew it was a sitcom so I knew that basically he was going to get off eventually so I felt like it wasn't worth <laughs> watching the second one <laughs> Well, I will say that the second one, Snap Your Judgment, is not as good and as fun as the first. No, and it's not as camera-y as, I mean, it's just more <laughs> It's It's whatever. not. Think of this as like a Law & Order episode. The first part of the episode dun, dun, is dun. about the crime. That's always really gritty and fun. The second part is about the prosecution, which they, you know, dramatize, but it's not as action-packed and thrilling. And that's what we have yeah. here. We have the trial. Uh, so Klinger needs a lawyer. It needs to be an officer. He wants Hawkeye to do it, but Hawkeye can't do it. So Charles offers his services, mostly because of his own ego. And if it's anything like his photography, uh, it won't go well. And Klinger reluctantly agrees. There is like a, a weird B plot where Hawkeye and Honey, uh, Hawkeye and, and BJ try to draw out the real thief by talking loudly about Charles's real-to-real -real tape recorder in hopes that they'll catch the thief red-handed. Oh my God, that was like silly. It was a little silly. It's a little It's a little bit of a farce, yeah. Uh, Charles doesn't know that his tape recorder is a bait. So I have a question. Do you think that there is a real-to-real -real tape recorder podcast that is also doing a piece about this episode? I hope so. I hope so too. If we're not there in podcast land yet, we probably will be very soon. That's a good point. So Klinger is on his way to trial three days later and is actually optimistic about his chances, which is probably a bad thing for him to be. It's gonna go terribly wrong. Absolutely it will be, because the prosecutor is played by Jack Blessing, who was Jack Powers on George Lopez, which is just a fun sentence to say. Also, he's incredibly good at his job. Jack Powers is such a great name. Oh my God, it is. Jack Powers is one of the most manly names you could get. Yeah. Yeah, it's up there with like Dick Army. 
Maybe Richard Beard. So Charles is really bad at his job, and Hawkeye's testimony is cut short and twisted by a prosecutor in ways that only sitcoms could do. The trial is going very badly for Klinger, uh, which, and he, he gets put on the stand, which I don't know if that shows how bad Charles is or he had to go on the stand because of, of army protocol. I don't know how that all works. But Charles' closing arguments focus mostly on Charles and Charles's ego. He doesn't want to lose. Back at the 4077, Hawkeye and BJ return and they explain how badly it's going. And also the wounded arrive. Now, uh-oh. Yeah, this didn't seem quite right. So everybody now is in the OR and you have a, a shot of the OR tent and you can hear the inner workings of the OR. But you also That's fun. You also see an MP. Now it's it's one of the same MPs who arrested Klinger. Mm-hmm. He sneaks into the swamp and lifts the tape recorder. So now we know who did it. The Crooked Ooh. MP is played by Monty Bain, which is a weird name. I think a, a name that could only exist in the 70s. He's I think Monty Bain is perfect too. I'm sorry, it's a great name. He's best known for his very small role on the movie Sleepwalkers, which you've seen. Ugh. Best movie ever. Oh. Saw that in the movie theater when I was a kid. I snuck in. It was the first movie I snuck into. Seriously? Sleepwalkers. Did you sleepwalk yeah. into it? Uh, no, but I didn't sleep for a long time after that. <laughs> so he was also in Gilmore Girls and the, ah, the horribly underrated Parker Lewis can't lose. So Monty Bain, the crooked MP. You always got to have a crooked cop. Gotta you have gotta, one. Of course, it's, it's mashed. You're going to have a crooked cop. It's just the sort of show it was. He takes the tape recorder behind another tent and puts it under a blanket with a sign over that says danger explosives. Nice. But right there is when Hawkeye and Pierce catch him red-handed. Hey, what are you doing? Beautiful. Keep snarling. You've got a real future in pictures. When he lifted up the the cover to where, where he was stashing all the stolen stuff, did you notice there was another camera there? You told me, and I haven't watched it again. <laughs> I couldn't tell what it was, but I think it was a rangefinder of some kind. Mm-hmm. So, but nobody was complaining about that camera, but everybody wanted to know where the Polaroid went. Back at the trial, just as the presiding officers were about to read the verdict, Pearson Honeycutt burst in with the crooked MP by the collar. I think Colonel Potter is there too. They explained that all of the thefts occurred when they were all in the OR. So they staged a phony OR. So those wounded were not wounded at all. Oh, Ooh, sneaky. sneaky. The head prosecutor somehow finds Klinger not guilty. This all just works out in wonderfully yeah, tropey. Within like 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. As the ending shot, the ending scene, back at the 4077, Hawkeye and BJ give Klinger the camera. Just give it to him. But he did pay for it. I mean, so that, that is one thing. And they start mm-hmm. to pose for a group shot. But here, an MP arrives and asks Father Mulcahy if he knows anything about 18 stolen Bibles. Klinger, camera in hand, runs off, roll credits. And that's it. That is our episodes of MASH. Ta-da! What did you think overall? I miss the time when it was sitcoms and it wasn't reality TV. We still have sitcoms. So (laughs) that was our movie night. We hope that you watched it. MASH is available on Hulu. I think... Think I've been meaning to do this for years and years. I think I'm going to start from episode one and just watch the whole damn series. 
Yeah, I was doing that with the Golden Girls. I'm doing that with with Facts of Life. I am in the middle of season four right now. Ooh, nice. We would like to find more sitcoms with cameras and photography. I have one picked out that I think we might do for our Patreon bonus episode this month. Yes. It is Different Strokes. So um, if you're a Patreon member at the $5 or higher level, that's probably what you'll be hearing this time around. So thank you for joining us and on with the rest of the show. Each episode, we get our cozy slippers back on or take them off for zine reviews. I think we take our cozy slippers off to look at zines. It just makes sense. (laughs) No no shoes, no zines, baby. (laughs) I don't don't know. know either. Uh, So this is our zine review section. We have been doing this podcast for about two years, and we still have not come up with a witty enough intro to keep. So So the zine we'll be reviewing this episode is My Eye Volume 6 by David Fry. Now, David Fry does a bunch of My Eyes, and a lot of them are digital. He does? (laughs) Is he like a spider? (laughs) He, uh, I don't think so, but I guess it's possible. Um. Some of them are more digital-based. Some of them are more film-based. This one is more film-based. I've really connected with this one, and I think he does as well. I think for different reasons. He has some of his writing in it. I'm here for the photographs, which are, oh boy, love them. So the zine itself is large, and it's like a full-size, kind of a magazine size. No, dude, it's a legit magazine. Yeah. He kills me with his, like, every. I got, I got one, and I am just always impressed he he's just good (laughs) he's just good at what he does i've always been a bit afraid of publishing something this large though yeah but he's like i don't know why because look you need that big sometimes you do especially all of the photos i've been taking lately the details are are so tiny on instagram and everybody's details are so tiny on instagram i wish Mm -hmm. that would be different somehow and i think this (laughs) publishing a big zine might be the way that, that we can make that different so so it allows for big photos and I, and, I, and I really like that. So the arrangement and the sequence of the photos takes you on like a drive through rural Wisconsin. And I'm, and I'm assuming it's Wisconsin. I, I really don't know, but it kind of seems like Wisconsin. So the zine wanders between various series of, of color and black and white shots and not black and what shots. These are, these are good. Uh, from the back streets to farmyards, the small towns to the shores of, I guess, Lake Michigan. I don't know. Maybe Lake Superior. I'm not sure where he is. It also drags you along through the seasons, through like a harsh winter to the last photo of spring. I'm seeing like, like we, he and I have very similar styles in a lot of our photos. And I'm not, I'm not usually drawn to that. Like if I see a zine that, 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 it looks very different from what I take. I'm very drawn to that because I want to say, oh, what are they doing? What are they doing? It's different from what I do because I know what I do. But I really like what he does, especially the cow pictures. He has a, a a series of cow and horses, cows and horses in here that I'm just like gaga over. Hmm. And then a, a, another photo with like a big tree, big empty tree and like half a barn. And it's fucking beautiful. Like really yeah. good work. <laughs> Oh my gosh, just incredible work. Definitely should check it 
check him out. He's at frymanbandgb on Instagram. Um, he doesn't really seem to have like a way you can purchase them, I don't think. I think just message him on Insta. Yeah. And you should. They're very, very well Absolutely. done. Absolutely. Good job, David Fry. Yay. Again and again. All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspaper.com account for research and audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do without you. We have some new patrons right now. We have Jeff P. You are not a ghost. Rick B. David C. Indignant Desert Bird. And Chris D. Thank you so much for your support. It would be stupid to try to do this podcast without you. If you'd like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head on over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. So, Vanya, we are wrapping up this episode, this weird, weird little episode that we just did. What does the next week look like for you? Well, I shot a ton of film. I have not developed because it's all E6, so I'm waiting for that kit to show up. Mm -hmm. So I'll have plenty of stuff to develop. I also went on a march with Marley in downtown, so I walked around with an AE1 and shot some Tasma Micrat for for some reason. Oh, what a strange thing. That's cool. I yeah, I also discovered the best chai in Los Angeles in downtown. Okay. <laughs> it Not is incredibly so good. convenient, but I know. <laughs> that that's the problem. It sucks. And this Saturday, I'm going to go see Strawberry Blonde because it's playing at the Old Town Music Hall. Lucky lady. Yes. How about you? What are you doing this next week? I am developing I have a lot of film that I shot over this past muddy, rainy weekend, so I'll be developing that. I don't know if I'm going out again. I mean, gas prices are kind of high. Things are not real cheap, and it's, you know, a good 200 bucks to do like a round trip. Mm. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. So I don't know if I'm going to go out again this weekend. I really, really want to. But if I don't... Maybe I'll just relax. I haven't had a nice relaxing weekend in a while. I don't have anything planned, and that's kind of nice, editing this episode. But by the time you guys hear this, it'll it'll be done. I am going to hang out and be a cool guy. I love that. Yeah. I might be a cool guy, too. <laughs> Ooh. Now, we are winding <laughs> down our season, just so I you know. know. We have, after this, we've got two episodes left before we go on summer break. Summer, Yikes. despite the rain. Uh, is actually upon us soon, very soon. So we've got two episodes left to record, but that also means we will be recording a series of dev parties to play for you over the summer. Mm -hmm. We have some ideas and we'll see how that goes. So we're recording those soon as well. Anything else you would like to say to these folks? Yes. 
Thank you so, so much. I love you all so, so, so much. And thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at All Through a Lens on Twitter. You could also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. You almost never get that right. Both on Instagram. Sorry. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag all through land podcast to be featured. <laughs> you can find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever you found this one. Just subscribe and give us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all again so, so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next week at that party. Ooh. Ooh uh, Vanya? Yes. Do you uh, want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Oi. Let's go. Plug your fridge back in. Oh, yeah. Should I press stop first? Or? Yes, press stop.